Live from Alachua, Florida, I'm Amrita Kaley. And I'm Nam Amrita. Welcome to Nectar Talks from the heart of New Raman Reiti, the largest Hare Krishna community in North America and the home of thousands of bhakti yoga practitioners. In our ongoing interviews, we dig deep into our search for loving connections with Krishna and each other. With you, we hope to uncover the real-life stories and inner journeys of our vibrant community of friends and special guests. Like bees searching for nectar, we seek to extract pearls of wisdom from how they live their lives and the lessons they can impart to us and our listeners. If you're seeking nectar, look no further. All right, let's get started. Because the wise can recognize the soul, their eyes are equal to cows and dogs and elephants and different sorts of people. When you gain equal eyes as you're residing on this earth, you'll thrive, be purified, and rise beyond death and rebirth. You'll tolerate the great and never hate what brings you pain. Appreciate me, you'll penetrate a higher plane. You'll celebrate escaping from the dictates of the senses. Awaken to the absolute as boundless bliss commences. Haribo. Haribo. <laughs> so uh, this is from Kalakantibabu's the rap of God, not to be confused with the wrath of God, um, rap version of the Bhagavad Gita, which he published in 2018 and has been hugely useful um, in outreach to newcomers and to myself in refreshing my Krishna consciousness. Hare Krishna, everyone, and welcome, welcome back to Nectar Talks. We're so happy to have you. Hi, everyone. Haribo. Haribo. Hare Krishna. We're, we're very, very grateful to host uh, His Grace Kalakanta Prabhu tonight. Welcome. How are you, Prabhu? Thank you very much. It's great to be here. <laughs> How did we do? I think that was super, super slow. I wanted to go like... It was <laughs> a little slow. We had to actually cut the time in half for me. She had it full speed and I just couldn't keep up with that. <laughs> she was, was going... <laughs> she was going for i forget that rapper who's like super super fast i was going for more of a snoop dog pace <laughs> anyways we have a lot of work we have a lot of work to do on that so i just want to introduce you briefly um such a, a beloved member of our community palakan tibrabu is um coming up this year on on practicing krishna consciousness for 50 years and he is mothered to mothered is married to mother jita for 40 years so those are both huge milestones and um, something that um, namamrita prabhu and and myself both aspire to as lifelong goals so congratulations on that thank you um kalakanta prabhu serves as the chaplain of the krishna house in gainesville um he recently retired from his um service as the president and turned that over to shruti sagar who we interviewed um, pretty recently. Um, he's a prolific writer, 
and we'll talk more about um, some of those publications in a moment. He served in different management positions for decades in ISKCON and seems to be particularly passionate about the development of ashrams. So we're also going to really kind of dive into that as well. Okay, so thank you again so much for, for uh, being here with us this evening. My pleasure. So Kalakanta Prabhu, um, you're known for the many services Amrita Kaley just pointed out, but perhaps not too many people know about your background, where you're from originally, and who was Carl Woodham growing up? Could you give us a little bit about uh, that background of yours? I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, as a son of a middle-class family, and uh, took an interest in spirituality at age 16. Started reading various books, which I found very confusing until I finally met some devotees at age 18. And uh, in the devotees, I saw people who were walking the talk. And mm. that inspired me to get to jump right in. And I have never regretted it. Okay. I know Namamrita wanted to pull out so much more about your background. All right. Tell me. <laughs> but we can, we, we can move on. But before we do, you joined in Portland, is that correct? Yes, yes. I left home at, at uh, just after graduating from high school on a spiritual quest, went out hitchhiking. There we go. And uh, visiting different ashrams, churches, and spiritual mm -hmm. teachers, and wound up in Portland at age at 18. And then uh, there were some devotees chanting out on the corner of, oh, anyway, downtown Portland. And I, had, I was immediately attracted. Dina Bandhu was the leader of the, the Kirtan party, Dina Bandhu in Vrindavan. And he and his good wife, Akuti, let me stay in the ashram. And, uh, you know, my parents uh, are vanilla Christians, nominal Christians, not very religious. And uh, I had experienced a great deal of dissatisfaction with the church in which I was raised. By the time I was 13, I had no more interest. So I was very pleased to discover that spirituality could be so real and so practical. My parents never uh, adjusted to that. They always kind of resented my career choice. And at the same time, they, they tolerated like uh, good Protestants, uh, never very close. Uh, I couldn't really share my spirituality with them. My mother passed away just this year at age, or last year rather, at age 100. So uh, I have one sister. She uh, lives still in Albuquerque with her husband. And um, again, I, I don't have much of a background before taking up Krishna consciousness. I, I played drums in a rock and roll band. I studied music. I learned how to type. Uh, I wasn't very interested in school. I had good SAT scores, but I didn't feel the university experience was for me. I love that you, uh, you called it a career choice because it, it really is a career in Krishna consciousness. And that's a, a bona fide uh, path in life, um, as we know. So I, I really like that you. Um, yes, they say that, that the, the pay is lousy, but the fringe benefits are out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> um, Literally. So I just want to touch base on, um, you know, we started off with this uh, excerpt of yours, and um, it made me think of 
the 26 qualities of a Vaishnav, and that's one of them, to be a poet. And I don't think it's uh, that easy to come along, um, but you've, uh, you've done so many different works as a, a kavi or poet, um, including the Blind Uncle Band and books and poems. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where that might have come from and, um, and what's the, the process that you go through when you actually put together a, a work of poetry? I started writing seriously in 1998. Uh, I was in Atlanta visiting Srila Prabhupada's room there where I had seen him in 1975. Mm. And uh, you, you may know that Srila Prabhupada put the Bhagavad Gita into Bengali poetry in his householder years uh, in a book called The Guitar Gone. Uh, yes, this, this is a picture of me with, with Srila Prabhupada uh, in Hyderabad in 1975. I'm just above and to the right of his divine grace's lotus head. <laughs> oh, yes. With, with the cool, cool glasses, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so young. How old were you there? Eight, I was 19. Wow. Uh, I'm sorry. By the way, Earlier, Modulila put up a picture. I thought it was a, a person joining the Zoom, but that was you also. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Another young picture of you. <laughs> yes, that was in, also in 1975 with Srila Prabhupada mm -hmm. in Atlanta. Those, Srila Prabhupada had glasses like that, and he said everyone should have glasses like these. So I followed his instructions. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So are, are you saying that the inspiration came mm. from Srila Prabhupada, Prabhupada yes. at all? Yeah, this was, the, this was the point that uh, Prabhupada had put the Gita in poetry. So I resolved to try to do that in English. And it was my first foray into writing. Uh, so more or less ever since then, I have dedicated roughly an hour every morning, usually between 3.30 mm. and 4.30 to writing. Um, Prabhupada said that little drops of water wear away big stones. And so I have found that over the years, just working a little bit on a big manuscript. Uh, eventually, it, it comes around to getting done. It usually takes me about two years to write a book. Mm -hmm. My dear departed God, Brother Sridhar Maharaj, used to say, how do you eat an elephant? Mm. One bite at a time. Yeah. So that's the motto. Uh, and well, and of course, Prabhupada did this. A little writing every day. Little drops of water wear away big stones, as he put it. Yeah. So oh, that's... I ahead. was just going to. OK, thank you. I was I was reflecting on your writings. So you've done poetic renditions of Canto 1 and 2 of the Bhagavad Gita, um, a summary of the Bhagavatam, plus a poeticized 10th Canto in A God Who Dances. Mm -hmm. um, and you've done the Krishna rap did the book, A Saint Within. So where, where does your inspiration come that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat the elephant on this particular project? <laughs> um, well, the, the first canto, of course, Srila Prabhupada said he had put everything in the first canto. So that, that was a priority. I've tried to actually follow Prabhupada's, um, Prabhupada's priority list. He first did the Gita, then he did, actually first did the first canto, then the Gita, and then the the Krishna book shortly thereafter. Mm. So I consider those the, the primary ones, not knowing how far I'd be able to get. Uh, I, should, I did want to mention my wife and I have also written a book about our experience with ashrams, which we, I guess we can talk about later, but 
there's some prose in there also. Somehow uh, poetry appeals to me, especially rhyming poetry. Uh, there's free verse poetry, which has no fixed meter or rhyming scheme. One, one writer compared mm -hmm. that to playing tennis without a net. Um, that uh, free verse poetry, for me, the discipline of, of writing in meter and rhyme forces you to choose every word very carefully. Mm -hmm. and, and Mark Twain said that the, the difference between choosing the right word and the wrong word is like the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. <laughs> so powerful. Yeah. Thinking about poetry and in mm. context of the the twenty six qualities of a devotee, uh, would you say that these twenty six qualities? It seems like a lot. You know, I'm looking at them right now. And um, would you say it's um, something that we should strive for as devotees to kind of focus in on these twenty six qualities and maybe pick one and put put some time of our mm. life dedicated to one of those or is it something that just kind of develops over time as we practice Krishna consciousness in general? Yes, this is a question that, that often comes up at the Krishna house. Hmm. And I always refer to the verse from the 10th canto, yes, yasti bhaktir bhagavati kinchana, the good qualities of the devotee appear automatically. So hmm. the, the more we're thinking about serving Krishna and the less we're thinking about our qualities, the more the good <laughs> qualities have room to manifest. Yes, that's a good point. <laughs> well, thank you, because I, I needed to know the answer to that one. I guess I should just go to Krishna. Actually, Namamrita, that was such a good question. You know, should we focus on developing the qualities or how, how does it, how does it, how do we find out what we're good at in Krishna consciousness? Right. A devotee once asked Jayananda Prabhu, how, how do I make advancement in Krishna consciousness? And he said, I don't know, I'm too busy to think about it. <laughs> That's a great example. Um, so um, it seems that when it comes to writing, really your heart is in poetry. And um, then you have, so the, we have the yin and yang of the poet and the manager, really. And when it comes to management, your heart is really in the development of the ashram. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes. And we had spoken to you earlier and you had told us that you had an experience at the LA Bhakta program and that that has really um, inspired your work in ashram development. Can you tell us what, what was that program? What, what was your experience of it? And what have you taken from it? When Srila Prabhupada was physically present, people were joining Krishna consciousness right and left. And the, the temples were flourishing, and it was a reliable flow of new people coming in all the time. So in 1978, after Srila Prabhupada's departure, uh, Prabhu at that time, we were both brahmacharis, he invited me to help him with the bhakti program in Los Angeles, which was a structured way for these new people, the new men, to get basic training and get established as devotees. So he had... He had developed it to a very fine level. And I had two years working with him extensively to learn how, how it all worked. And it was just amazing. It was wonderful. And seeing these young men and women coming in and becoming enthused about Krishna consciousness, even after Prabhupada's departure, it was very faith building for us all. 
And uh, he taught me that to, to look at people equally, to don't prejudge them based on their external conditions, give everybody a chance. Yeah. Um, he taught me to find something in everybody in a way in which they are superior to you. So you mm. can treat them with genuine respect. And um, these sort of things stuck with me. It was, a, I, as a brahmacharya, it was, it was a, just a wonderful experience. Previously, I had done traveling Sankirtan with the library party for four years. So this was, in a way, a step up from that service to, to really making a direct difference in people's lives one by one. So uh, after two years, at that time, ISKCON was in a lot of chaos. And uh, I went on to other services, but always remembered that as such a wonderful experience. So subsequently, I started serving as a temple president, and I tried to emulate that program as a, as a president. But in it, it, the resources were so slim that we could just never quite get it off the ground mm. until 2006 when we came to Gainesville. And then it just exploded beyond all of our expectations. Mm. Mm. Well, it seems like you've developed an expert ability to present bhakti to young Westerners in ways that are really logical and attractive and inspiring. Um, and I find that to be really clearly visible in the way you speak, um, you know, in lectures or just seeing you interact with other people. Uh, when it comes to the, the ashram mission, what are some of the strategies that you've discovered and developed over the years that make this program so successful that it really seems to be a role model for worldwide? You know, I mean, I, I'm always hearing how the Krishna House model is something that works so well, and it seems like it's trying to be spread in different parts of the world. Yeah, we're hopeful. We, we, uh, we have been studying ashrams. We, some colleagues and I who work with a GBC advisory group called Subha, have been studying the ashram condition throughout ISKCON. And there's mm -hmm. a few bright spots, but by and large, that experience is sort of dissipated. Mm -hmm. So the, the simple strategies are the same ones that worked on 26-second avenue. The presentation needs to be in terms that the person can understand. After years of speaking to established devotees, we may get a have a sense of wanting to present Krishna consciousness in um, uh, more technical terms or quoting a lot of verses and things that a sophisticated audience can relish. So many of us have lost the knack mm -hmm. to just gear it down and make sure that every word is understood and every concept is clearly presented. So uh, that is the first, in terms of presentation, that's the key. Uh, not assuming that the person knows anything, finding the newest person in mm. the room and talking to that person and making sure they understand what you're saying. That's what, what I have learned over the years at the Krishna house. If the new person understands, mm. Uh, what you're saying, then everyone in the room becomes enlivened. Yeah, this is our class of 2021. Uh -huh. uh, all vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> so nice to see smiling faces, not just that. <laughs> actual mouths. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, you know, but before I go on, if I may just add, I think this picture illustrates my next point, which is the fellowship. When young people can come together with other young spiritual aspirants 
that's what really makes the magic happen. Mm. And that happened at 262nd Avenue, that happened in our temples throughout the 60s and 70s. And it is still, there's still plenty of customers today if we can give the, the fellowship that they're seeking. Mm. Mm. Great. So find the I'm, newest person in the, in the room, speak to them, make every word count, and fellowship. Those are great So points. something I'm reflecting on is how intrinsically that means that everyone is included in outreach. Because if I have been practicing or hanging around the Krishna house or coming to morning programs for one month longer than the newest person, I can give a class that everyone <laughs> can understand, right? Including myself. Yes, so, so it really takes the pressure off, I think, um, when it comes to presenting Krishna consciousness and, and gives life to, you know, I believe Srila Prabhupada was very encouraging of us just preach what you know, or, or if we don't want to use the preach word, just share what you know. Um, that is sufficient to uh, spark someone's memory in spiritual life and, and encourage them and give them enthusiasm. Yes, that's, that's very true. In fact, doing the ashram at Krishna House has given us a new perspective about outreach altogether. We tend to think about out outreach in terms of bringing new people in. But in fact, what outreach does is instill faith in the Sankirtan movement in the, in the newcomer, in the practitioner. That's actually the most valuable mm -hmm. part of the experience. Yes, it introduces new people, it may attract some new people, but it gives that uh, taste for which we are always anxious. You know, whether it's serving prasadam or distributing books, always the focus is on the, the devotee who's doing the outreach, how they're benefiting, how they're growing in their spiritual life. And, and keeping that focus has, has enabled us to help people become more established devotees. One of the feelings I had in, in the first few times that I came to Krishna house and attended the morning program was this must be how it was in the early days with Srila Prabhupada. <laughs> and now I'm thinking you even replicated the 20 year olds who are now in charge. <laughs> 30. We're 30 year olds. <laughs> the demographics in our Sangha are pretty, pretty uh, truncated here. We have people in their 60s and 70s, and then we have people in their 20s and 30s, maybe we've got a huge void in the 40s and 50s uh, due to the chaos in ISKCON There's in, in those years following Prabhupada's departure. Hmm. So many of us felt like the ashram experience was something of the past, just a relic, uh, a happy memory. So it, yes, it has been one of the most fulfilling experiences of my life to see it re-emerge in such a viable way. You had mentioned earlier that um, very recently you and Mother Jita co-authored a book together that is called Endangered Species. And it talks about um, the Krishna House Project and um, the development of ashrams in ISKCON. Um, in my experience of living at Krishna House, I know Mother Jita is very much behind the scenes and um, we wanted her to join tonight, but she wants to be behind the scenes and we love her for that. I wondered if you could speak to a little bit to 
her influence in the development of the mood at Krishna House that was so palpable um, and continues to be. Mm -hmm. she, my good wife, Chita Mitra, had a, also had a wonderful experience as an ashram resident. I should mention that I had had two beautiful years in ISKCON Portland, small ashram, loved every minute of it. And then she, she was at the Henry Street Temple in Brooklyn from age 17 to 19 or 20. So both of us had these formative experiences in ashrams. And she provides the administrative support that makes it possible for the temple environment to run smoothly with a low degree of stress and anxiety. That's her contribution. Believe me, I, I called every favor I had to get her to join me tonight, but she, uh, <laughs> she doesn't do cameras. <laughs> But she is wonderful. Uh, her steadiness, her uh, mm. sweet mood, uh, her appreciation of seeing newcomers, uh, becoming established devotees. She enjoys that as much as I do. Very, always very interesting cast of characters. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the real, there have many, been many, many ashrams, of course, since 1978 and uh, in North America. Other parts of the world have other situations. So I really, I'm just addressing the North American scene. Many attempts have been made and continue to be made, but they're primarily for men. In almost all cases, there's men's ashrams. In fact, right now our Krishna house in Gainesville and in Houston have the only supervised ladies ashrams in the whole continent. Uh, uh, but in these places, a young woman can come in and get equal treatment, equal facility, equal opportunity. That's how it was in the 60s. That's how it was in, in San Francisco is the most vivid example. Srila uh, Prabhupada welcomed young women. He gave them all encouragement. He gave them all mm -hmm. the, the same opportunities as men. And there was a family atmosphere that grew from it. This is especially applicable for people from, from uh, Western countries because they're used to co-educational environments. They're used to being with uh, intergender environments all the time. So the, when the ashram uh, facility that we created provided for women to join as well as men, that's when it really took off. Uh, the ashram at Krishna House has been going strong for 13, 14 years now. The, we just had a meeting today where we're going to put everybody, you know, <laughs> trying to cram more people in here in the <laughs> attic and then, you know, <laughs> double up in the rooms. And <laughs> it, it, it's because of that family environment that was prevalent in the ISKCON temples in the 60s and 70s. I knew it drew me in as soon as I, I met the devotees and I saw the happiness and the cooperation i immediately wanted to be part of it um, so yeah huh? uh, that's great um you know when when you first mentioned that i'll admit that i was thinking well yeah duh you know there's the attraction between men and women so that will make the environment more appealing but actually what you're focusing on is this, this family atmosphere. And so that's yeah. really, really nice that it's not so much based on the attraction between men and women. It's just, yeah. it makes it a more wholesome environment 
like a family, which is extremely mm -hmm. attractive and comforting yes. to be around. Just, just last night, I had a class at the Krishna House with some new students visiting from University of Florida. And I asked everybody, how would you, how would you improve your life if you could? What way would you improve your life? So two, two or three of the young people said, yeah, I wish I could make more friends. Uh, people want and need fellowship. It's so impersonal out there. And yeah. social media does not fill the gap. Yeah. We had a professor, or a, um, <clears throat> administrator from the counseling department at the university visiting. And she was saying how the, the pressure on the counselors at the university has just skyrocketed over the last five years, uh, 10 years. Suicide calls are up. The depression, anxiety, stress uh, is up. The counselors have been reduced to prescribing and managing medications. They can, can not do any more cognitive therapy to talk to people. There's just so much demand. And so they tracked the cause of this dramatic increase in stress and found out it was social media. They discovered that because people have an artificial sense of family, or fellowship in a chat group or whatever, yeah. they, they superficially feel their social needs are being met. But at the same time, they uh, uh, are actually not fulfilled. So the, the professor took this finding to a, a group of students to ask for their feedback, a focus group. And they came back with a recommendation. We think you should make a website about this. <laughs> So, That's funny. Could I uh, could I interrupt for a moment? I want to introduce a special a special person. Yes, please. This is my granddaughter Ava. Hi, Ava. Hey, how are you? Ava. Ava, can you tell Welcome us? Welcome to Nectar Talks. Where do you go to school? Vanna. Uh, oh, you go to what grade Vanna. are you in? Fourth. Fourth grade. Just started. Fourth, fourth grade. Right? Yes. And what do you great. like to do? Well, I like to paint. And write. Your mom's a painter and granddad's a writer. You're in line with the family. That's right. Who do, you like better? Who do you like better, your mom or your grandpa? <laughs> Trick <laughs> question. Are going to answer that question? <laughs> <laughs> it's already been answered. <laughs> Please give Ava your blessings. Ava, it's so nice to meet you. Thank you for saying hi. Thank you. Hi, Great to oh, see hi, you, Ava. Me too. Well, Prabhu, I wanted to, um, you know, you and your wife co-authored this book called Endangered Species um, about the, ash the, the ashram. What's the full title? Uh, Endangered Species, Iskon Ashramites in the West. Okay. So mm -hmm. I haven't had a chance to read it, but it made me think of a little discussion that came about uh, during a meeting that I was a part of for the temple. And a senior devotee mentioned, he said, can you believe that one day the leaders of our movement may not have had the ashram experience that we all had? Um, mm -hmm. And part of me was thinking, well, yeah, I guess that's just the natural course of how things have developed. Um, most devotees are not getting to have that experience. Um, so can you tell us what's your take on that? And, um, you know, maybe a little bit more about this, uh, 
this book that you you guys have authored. Yes, um, <clears throat> as ISKCON has grown in in the West, particularly in the first world, much of our congregation development has been with the Indian community. And in fact, when, when the temples were declining after Prabhupada's departure, the Indian community stepped in and saved them in many, many cases. So they are an integral part of, of our movement. And many of them have taken leadership roles now in, in promoting Krishna consciousness in, in North America and other parts of the West. However, these devotees don't require ashram training because they, they have an indigenous understanding and appreciation for the culture. But for someone who's raised in an entirely different culture, they need an immersion experience in, in almost all cases. Uh, we're, we're talking about people who are new to Krishna consciousness, not devotees who have been born and raised as devotees. They also have that necessary cultural background that makes the ashram somewhat less important. Mm. But for, for the others who don't fall in those two categories, they really have got to have the ashram to become established in mm -hmm. lifelong practitioners of bhakti. Yeah. Um, what about, say, uh, an adult Westerner that, that joins the movement and, um, you know, takes initiation? How would you have this person get that exposure if he's kind of out of the traditional age group of ashram life? Yeah. It, it's more difficult, but possible for people like that. One of our recent graduates is late 50s, uh, Jai Chaitanya Prabhu. Mm -hmm. His daughter, Kumari Saki, became a devotee in Jacksonville under Amrita Kaili's tutelage, and wow. later came to Krishna House and uh, introduced her father, who also became a very serious devotee. So he's taken initiation from Giriraj Swami. He's just graduated as a hospice chaplain and uh, plans to dedicate his life to Giri Raj Maharaj's vision of, of uh, hospice care for devotees. So there are exceptions, but generally youth is the time. When Srila Prabhupada came to Gainesville, the, a reporter asked him, how come all of your followers are young people? So he retorted, how come all of the students at your university are young people? <laughs> <laughs> youth is the time for education. Right. So uh, it, it's not restricted by any material circumstance. Anyone is welcome to try, but generally young people are more flexible. Right. But you're reminding me that when I was in college, there was quite regularly, not a huge percentage, but there was a, that older person who was there taking a college course. So it's great that, you know, you have room for that and that they can still come and get that experience in some way or another yes. through the program. Yes. It's, it's harder, but it is possible. Yeah. Mm. By the way, the, the, the name of our book again is Iskan Ashramites. I would like to point out that Ashramites is a genuine bona fide word in the English language. And, and, and it does not refer to insects in, a, in an ashram. Uh, it, <laughs> it refers to residents of an ashram. And <laughs> those, those who have dedicated their time to an immersion experience and where it was pardon me i was just asking where can it be found um I, I, it's only available as an ebook or a pdf download it's free and the 
website is called iskonashramites.com. I posted it on the chat if, if you'd like to somehow okay. share that with yeah, others. Maybe uh, Vaishnavi Prabhu I already put did. that in the... Okay, I already great. did. Thank, Thank you. you. It's about 100 pages. It basically catalogs our experience in Gainesville, what we learned, uh, how we've refined it, mistakes we've made. And I, I want to stress that the curriculum in the ashram is a little more realistic for what actually happens to devotees in their lives. We, we give a lot of encouragement and support for Grihasta ashram because 95% of the devotees who become devotees ultimately become Grihastas, nearly all. And yet most of the training in the past has been on this, on the emphasis of renunciation. Mm -hmm. So we help prepare people for sustainable marital relationships, for being responsible parents. And uh, you mentioned earlier, Namamrita Prabhu, about the, the men and women, young men and young women in, in a uh, community, you would think it would be a, a very uh, agitated kind of environment. But right. in fact, that, that family atmosphere, that feeling is so strong. And this teaching that, look, most of you guys are going to be married, but you don't need to get married now. This is right. the time to get your spiritual foundation in order. And at the appropriate time, you'll be able to attract a partner who shares your Krishna consciousness. Yeah. So this helps keep the temperature down uh, amazingly, actually. Yeah. Uh, the, the degree of agitation seems to be much less when there is a, a friendly but respectful relationship between men and women instead of mm -hmm. the forbidden fruit approach where men and women are strictly cloistered. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such a great point and such a healthy approach to that um, potential tension that you would find with that. Um, maybe I can use that as a segue, um, you know, speaking about the relationship of men and women in the ashram um, from what I understand, you're a big supporter of just pushing the support for women, the position of women in the movement. Um, the female Diksha Guru resolution came out in recent years. What is your vision presently and for the future of ISKCON's women and um, ISKCON's view of women moving forward? Well, first, I'd like to say... That I, I aspire to be a follower of Srila Prabhupada. And I, we, we, when we study what Srila Prabhupada actually did when introducing Krishna consciousness in the West, we see that his most innovative shift from traditional practices was the inclusion of women. He said this himself on a number of occasions. He writes in the Chaitanya Charitamrita that sometimes I am criticized for facilitating women in temples. Mm -hmm. But those who are criticizing me cannot do anything to spread Krishna consciousness. He said, so, very strong language. He said, they'll have to be satisfied with their own foolishness. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're just following what Prabhupada did, you see? It, and it's still amazingly effective. Mm -hmm. So this is why it's not a social construct. It's not even a philosophical debate. It's just a very pragmatic matter. Do you want to spread Krishna consciousness outside of the Hindu community? 
-hmm. The Hindu community can tolerate more readily the, the uh, different traditional gender roles. But, and that's because the women generally know how to ma manipulate everything behind the scenes, right? Mm -hmm. they, they can control. <laughs> but in the West, that sort of uh, segregation is just seen as very backwards. There was yeah. a study amongst millennials about what are important considerations in religious choices for them. And the two factors they named as the most important are how women are treated and how this religious organization addresses the environmental crisis. Mm. So just being very pragmatic with you, when we started treating women equally, better than they had been treated since Prabhupada's departure, really. Uh, all of a sudden, the, the whole ashram scene just blossomed. And the, the joy returned and the ritualistic element was, was out. And all of a sudden, the, the temple was full of life and vibrancy and enthusiasm and hope. People wanting to share Krishna consciousness with others spontaneously because of their own joy, just mm -hmm. like the old days. So women are the key. When, when a, a young lady wants to join the ashram in Gainesville, we just feel like the goddess of fortune has come. <laughs> and we are very grateful. I got a call from an, a, a dear old friend on, on the West Coast just a month ago saying, I distributed a book to this young lady. She's super interested. She really wants to become a devotee, but we don't have any facility. Mm. Do you have, can you help her? So here she is. She's, we're very happy to have her. She's yeah. doing great. She is contributing already. So this is, this is my point that we cut ourselves off from 50% of humanity if we're going to have a men's only ashram. Right. And I love the point you made that this is also simply following in Prabhupada's footsteps. This was one of his biggest contributions, and we're just pursuing that. Exactly. This is just what he did. Not so much in New York as in San Francisco. He was open. Mm. Women were welcomed in New York. But in San Francisco, it was as many women as men in, in the temple. And there was no sense you got to understand what, what it was like in those days. Yeah. Men, boys and girls just pile into vans. There was no <laughs> men's side or women's side in the, in the uh, temple room. <laughs> Everyone would just yeah. get up. Uh, there was just no sense of this gender uh, yeah. identity like we gained mm. in the late 70s and thereafter. Right, right. If it's so uh, stark, then it then it feels very uncomfortable and unnatural to shift from one cultural concept to a completely different cultural concept and kind of artificially place yourself in that position. Right? Yes. Yes. In fact, there, there's a purport in the Chaitanya Charitamrita in which Srila Prabhupada describes this phenomenon. Uh, he says you could not, you would not introduce renunciation to somebody from India as you, in the same way you would to somebody from uh, America or Europe. He said, to try to impose one set of cultural values on another culture is neomagraha. It is trying to do the impossible. You know, he hated that word, impossible. <laughs> yeah. But it actually describes this effort as mm. an impossible pursuit. <laughs> so, uh, 
if we can make Krishna consciousness accessible to people, they'll take it up. If we put a bunch of cultural barriers in front of them mm. before they can take up Krishna consciousness, we're not going to spread this movement effectively. Yeah. I like how you're pointing out that it's important to just um, adapt according to the culture we're in. You know, like you said, you're not going to preach the same way to an Indian who knows so much about Vedic culture as you would with the, the Westerners. When it comes to the, um, the female Diksha Guru topic, uh, my understanding is that, which I think got, finally got approved on the GBC as a resolution some years ago, um, but as far as the implementation, um, it seems like that's part of the issue that um, in certain places of the world, it's just really hard to, to let that happen. Whereas in the West, it, it's a lot more sought after. Yes, this has been a, a flashpoint issue in our, in our Sangha. Um, the devotees in India who have done amazing things spreading Krishna consciousness, market Krishna consciousness on the basis of we are adherents to the strict Vedic culture. Mm-hmm. And this appeals to, to people who value that and don't want to see India become westernized. Mm. So that's their whole strength of marketing. You see. But in the West, it's an entirely different approach. We have to say, just add Krishna. You don't have to take up a new cultural practice in your life. You don't have to change your clothes or change your dress or change your hairstyle or your, your language. Just add Krishna. Yeah. So... Consequently, in India, the devotees uh, argue there should not be any women giving diksha. Giving initiation is a man's service, and they, they have made this point and made it clear that's their position. In the West, on the other hand, the devotees have years ago asked the GBC, please allow some women to initiate. When Srila Prabhupada was asked about this question, he said, yes, some but not many. Some, but not many women should initiate. So why is it important to me as a preacher in the West? Very simple reason that the wonderful young ladies taking up Krishna consciousness need to know that this is not a chauvinistic, misogynistic organization that preaches, you're not this body, but practices, if you're in this kind of body, you're limited in this way, in this way, in this way. Right. Um, These, you know, I just have to say very... Frankly, in, in Prabhupada's absence, the, his women, his female disciples have been terribly neglected or worse and, yeah. and uh, disrespected and put down. I think your, your mother told this story, I believe, right, Namamrita? I, well, I know she, she put together a whole uh, document um, uh, about women in the movement in the time of Prabhupada that's been traveling may, may around. I, may I just share one story? I, I'm not sure if it's from that document, but it's from her memoirs, which we read recently. Uh-huh. She, she, was, she loved giving classes. She loved to give classes in Paris where she was living. Mm-hmm. And uh, her classes were very well received. So a new GBC man came in and said, okay, now you can no longer give classes. Uh, this more conservative approach was considered by some to be more advanced. <laughs> and so she objected and said, uh, I, I, I love giving classes. People like my classes. Why should I not give classes? Ask Srila Prabhupada. So the GBC uh, agreed. He wrote to Prabhupada. Prabhupada wrote back, yes, she can give classes. Um, 
But that letter was never shown to anybody because he threw it in the trash can. Mm -hmm. And she knew that he threw it in the trash can because she found it there. (laughs) So, so the tragic. Yes, it is. I mean, it's the the repression that women have endured is, is amazing. I don't think most of my God brothers could tolerate being devotees if they had to endure the things that women had to endure. And this yeah. refusal or this delay in letting women give diksha is another insult. It's just an insult to Prabhupada's legacy. It's an insult to his disciples. It's very offensive, actually. So yeah. Not many want to do it. But those who do meet all the qualifications that are there for men, every one of them, except that they're yeah. in a woman's body. Why? And people, many people want them as their diksha gurus. Particularly yeah. women will be inclined towards uh, female gurus because they may have issues with men in their lives. They may have been abused. They may not, and they may have trust issues. So here are these sincere young devotees who want this qualified devotee to initiate them, but no, you can't do it because you're a woman. See, so this was a real travesty. Fortunately, the GBC recognizing the dichotomy between East and West said, okay, let each part of the world make up their own mind whether to allow, which I consider a very appropriate and suitable uh, yeah. resolution. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, some of the more extreme uh, 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 opponents in India have argued against this, and that has delayed the implementation. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's coming to a, a, a point. The resolution has been attacked and attacked and attacked, and it's stood up every time. So that it's just a matter of how it will be implemented. Yeah. It's sad that we have already lost some very qualified Vaishnavis who are willing yeah. to give Diksha and who had people wanting to take Diksha from them but have left their bodies. I'm thinking Mother mm-hmm. Krishna Nandini, Mother Jamuna. Yes. Um, you know, just, just a tragedy that these, these people could not, these devotees could not fulfill that service that uh, they were very much wanted to do. Yeah. I was just reading a passage of. Uh... Mother Jamuna's kind of final words, which were that she, if she had time, she wanted to do so much more to help the women and the young girls in the movement. Yes. Thank you so much for putting such a strong emphasis on this. Mm -hmm. Um, Was there anything else? Well, I just just really want to say again, I I feel this strongly because I am aspiring to be a follower of Srila Prabhupada. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe any objective study of Prabhupada's approach to spreading Krishna consciousness in the West uh, has to recognize his innovative approach to dealing with, with uh, women as devotees. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'd like to zoom out on that topic a little bit. Um, I came upon a recent offering of yours, which was uh, for the one-year anniversary of Bhakti Charu Swami's departure. Um, and in that offering, you put a strong emphasis again on the fact that his disciples, now that he has left the planet, are now eligible to become gurus themselves. And you encouraged his disciples to consider, consider this very seriously. Um, and you kind of gave some words of, um, you know, this should not be such an intimidating consideration. Um, I'd like to discuss this with you a little bit, hearing you speak about that, 
um, and the the need for this, the many advantages and improvements that could come about for our society if there were more gurus available. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, this is um, this has been one of our greatest struggles after Prabhupada's departure. Um, I don't want to go in great detail, but I would like to say that I have been personally intimately involved with the evolution of the guru system in ISKCON since, uh, since 1978. Um, I was at, at the GBC meeting in Mayapur that year after Prabhupada's departure, and not as a GBC, but as a support person. And uh, they were confused young men, really, who didn't know what to do. And they, got, they took advice. From, from certain quarters outside of ISKCON and implemented the zonal acharya idea, which was consistent with the approach that, that these, the outside people were taking. And of course it was a massive disaster and it, it seriously crippled the movement. The, the notion that being a Diksha guru means you have to be Prabhupada-esque is fallacious. Uh, it it mm. is contrary to Prabhupada's teaching in 1975 in Mayapur, I, uh, I was fortunate to attend a lecture that Srila Prabhupada was giving on the Chaitanya Charitamrita. It was verse 13 in Adi Lila, chapter one, about Advaita Acharya. And he defined an Acharya, a person who knows the philosophy, practices the philosophy, and teaches the philosophy. This is an Acharya, he said. And it's not difficult. It's not difficult. So he said, so we have how many Acharyas in our movement? 10,000, and he looked across the room, there are about 200 of us there, mostly with mismatched socks. <laughs> we have about 10,000, 10,000 will become 100,000, 100,000 mm. will become a million, 1 million will become 10 million, and there will be no shortage of acharyas. Powerful words. And then, then he said, you are young men, you can organize this. I am an old man, I have no opportunity. And with those words, he went into a rare public ecstatic trance. That notion of 10 million gurus around the world put Prabhupada in ecstasy. And he just lost touch with the external world for a couple of minutes. So 10 million gurus. Okay, In uh, about 30 years ago, we had 90 gurus in ISKCON, Diksha gurus. Today, we have about 90 Diksha gurus in this country. <laughs> uh, and most of them are uh, decrepit old men like me. So <laughs> it's it, the GBC is becoming acutely aware that this, mm. uh, this system has got to be changed. And instead of looking at reasons why people shouldn't be, we should be looking for reasons why they should be able to give Diksha. Now, one of the very powerful lessons on Guru Tattva from Chaitanya Charitamrita is given in the Adi Lila that to differentiate between the Siksha and Diksha gurus is uh, it's offensive, it's a mistake. They are separate but equal manifestations of the Supreme Personality mm -hmm. of Godhead, equally empowered but with different functions. So because of the early politicization of the zonal acharyas, how they became this elite group, even above the GBC. It took 10 years for the GBC to get that straightened out. 
1985, there was a 50-man committee, no women, just 50 men. And I, I was on that committee and we went through and helped the GBC write the ship and say, no guru in ISKCON is above the GBC. So the difficulty is the lingering effect of the zonal acharya's uh, fiasco is that the whole idea of being a Diksha guru is seen as this political position, mm. this hierarchical position, when that's so far from what it's supposed to be. Being a Diksha guru is compared to being a parent in the fifth canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. Guru nasasyat, nasasyat. No one should become a parent, a teacher, or a, a spiritual master unless they can deliver their dependence. Mm. So after a, a career in Krishna consciousness, if you've been a devotee, you've been following the regulator principles, you've been chanting your rounds, serving to the best of your ability for 30, 40 years, in most cases, having raised a family, you think a person, mm. is it really such a big deal to be able to say to a young aspiring devotee, yes, I will be here for you. I'm not going anywhere. I will answer your emails. I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll be here to support your, your spiritual advancement to the best of my ability. That's not only natural, it's important. It's important for the devotee. Otherwise, what is the meaning of that life spent in Krishna consciousness? You know? what, is the, what is the outcome of it? Well, I'm just concerned about my own salvation. I don't, you know, others, they're on their own. <laughs> So Prabhupada's vision was that each of his disciples would have 10 disciples. Simple math. It, that was his vision. And it hasn't worked out like that. And that makes us a very weak organization. We, if we have uh, a few dozen gurus with thousands of disciples and we lose those gurus, where do we stand? But we, we need thousands of gurus who have smaller numbers of disciples. At least that is a common option for newcomers. Yeah. Most of us who are Prabhupada's disciples did not have a lot of interaction with him. So if people are inspired by a very charismatic, powerful preacher and are content with worshiping that person from a distance, knowing they won't see him much, that's all right. Nothing wrong with that. But there are so many qualified devotees who could take care of five or ten disciples, but they're not encouraged. They don't think it's for them. They think being a, a Diksha guru means you've got to be an international celebrity of some kind. You know, mm. uh, almost all of our Diksha gurus are sannyasis. That's not part of our tradition, really. Generally, gurus are very localized people with, with uh, families and, and uh, the guru ma to help with raise the disciple, care for the yeah. disciple. That, that's really been a, a point for me, which is that uh, growing up in ISKCON, I, I was I was taught this idea that you're going to go through the the four ashrams and eventually you'll be a sannyas. That was kind of the old school mentality, and uh, and sure enough, that's become the image that we normally see of the uh, the diksha guru as a sannyasi. Yes. Whereas for someone who's looking for a mentor or a teacher or a, a guide, you want to know that this person. Um, has had life experiences um, that you're going through. And so a Grihasta guru in, in some ways can be very appealing because, you know, there's, there's of course sannyasis who have gone through all the ashrams, but there's also lifelong sannyasis who, you know, haven't had the same life experiences. And that can be uh, an issue for a, a potential disciple 
you know, whereas if I know this man's had a career, he's raised a family, these are all the things I'm going through, you know, he's lived it, he's been there, and he can show me the ropes on how to be Krishna conscious through all that. If I might point out, Prabhu, I, I have great respect for my godbrothers who've taken sannyas and, and stuck with it because it's very difficult. Yeah. Uh, the traveling, the pressures, it's tough. But mm. just to, to put a fine point on what you just said, we actually only have a very small number. I don't know. I only know of one or two sannyasis in ISKCON who've actually raised a family in ISKCON. Yeah. There are some who had children, but they, they went ahead and took sannyas with their children at a young age. So right. that experience of having raised a family in Krishna consciousness is really invaluable. And we, there's plenty of references in Prabhupada's books on this point that uh, you don't have to have a danda to be a, a sannyas in the sense of a renunciate, of giving everything to Krishna. Prabhupada said, all these boys and girls, they're all better than sannyasis. He made that public statement in India one time. Uh, mm -hmm. But on many occasions, uh, it's, it's my, my dear godbrother Vaisheshika Prabhu is often asked, are you going to take sannyas? And he just answers, well, sannyas is not recommended in this age. <laughs> so the, everybody is welcome to pursue their own service and the ashram that best suits them. That has nothing to do with taking care of aspiring new devotees as a Diksha mm. Guru. I find that when we take on this idea that perhaps one day we might all be responsible to that one person who comes to us and says, can you give me shelter? Can you be, can you guide me? That uh, Namamrita and I were, were talking about this the other day, it automatically plants the seed in our young devotee brain and heart that, you know, we need to live with integrity. We need to, we need to follow the principles. We need to um, qualify ourselves right? And keep ourselves qualified so that um, we can give shelter to other people, whether it be Diksha or Shiksha, like you said. I mean, whatever the case may be, this is, this is also something that can be very individually inspiring for a person yeah. on the inside yes. in terms of our sadhana. And... Yes. Yeah. That, that's you, a... yes. Mm -hmm. Please. I was just going to say, I've had the experience, for example, when I became a flight instructor, that's when I really learned aviation. Mm -hmm. Similarly, when I taught Bhagavad Gita in a yoga studio, that's mm -hmm. when I really learned Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> because if you have to teach it to others, you have no choice but to just know it in and out, you know? Um, yes. It's an incentive to continue practicing Krishna consciousness as well and to deepen, to continue deepening one's Krishna consciousness. Yeah. To, to be responsible to a few students. Absolutely. Is there a difference in the qualifications for a shiksha versus diksha? Because I feel like I've been a shiksha guru, perhaps, to, you know, like I have this one mm -hmm. younger friend. I've been in touch with him for years and encouraging mm -hmm. him in his Krishna consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so m maybe that qualifies me as a shiksha guru, but I certainly don't feel qualified to be a diksha guru because... I'm not a perfect disciple myself. <laughs> well, <clears throat> this is the, the usual conception, isn't it? That, yeah, anyone can be Siksha, but to be Diksha, you've got to be on this higher level. Right. When, and in fact, the Shastra says that they're equally 
qualified. If one is qualified to give siksha, according to the Shastra, one is qualified to give diksha. The, the difference is the sustained relationship. <clears throat> the diksha guru and the disciple make this lifelong commitment that they're going to work together. I see. And what is the qualification to do that? See, that's really the question. The qualification is that one is committed to staying in Krishna consciousness, committed to following the regular principles, committed to chanting 16 rounds, committed to serving Prabhupada and being the best devotee or follower of Prabhupada they can be. It doesn't, all, all of the ideas that the Diksha Guru has got to have this uh, Madhurya Rasa going on, and mm. it's, it's just a hangover from the zonal acharya fiasco. Mm. Okay. Uh, it's how do you tell if somebody is wrapped in Krishna Prem? Well, <laughs> you know, how do you tell if someone is an Uttama Adhikari as opposed to a Madhyama Adhikari? Mm. Uh, one devotee suggested we should invent an Utameter, something like a, <laughs> a Geiger counter that we could just. <laughs> That'll do it. The point is not how elevated the guru is. The point is how much the guru can help the disciple. Mm -hmm. We know that Prabhupada's books are the cornerstone of our spiritual teaching. Mm -hmm. So if a devotee is, has shown by his or her life that they are committed, they are invested, they're following purely, that's sufficient to be a siksha or diksha guru. Uh, the, there's discussion now about having some more formal training, recognized. That's fine. Prabhupada had that. Uh, he, he expressed that in a letter in 1975 that the, uh, any devotee who passed a certain degree of academic proficiency in his books would be eligible to initiate disciples. Hmm. So that standard has already been given, but we've, get, we've added so much on top of that that you know, it's become something that most devotees, unfortunately, just don't think about. Yeah, I think. Would you go ahead? I was just going to say your point earlier that um, there's a big difference between what it means to be qualified to be a guru and then what's happened sort of institutionally within ISKCON that makes people think, based on you know these past patterns, that we have to. Um, I think you used the word be an international superstar or something like that. And if we can just slowly start to um, break down that idea that, that's been set up institutionally, that um, it simplifies it so much and takes the pressure off of all of these incredible senior devotees that we see around us that we know all of you can, can give diksha and we want to see that. Mm -hmm. yeah. It also gives an incentive to reach out. So if you, you introduce a new person and you train a new person and that person asks you and you can give them initiation. It's a very natural phenomenon. These Prabhupada writes that the Siksha guru generally becomes a Diksha guru. Mm -hmm. So if people are not giving Diksha, they, they have less incentive to do outreach and try to help new people. Mm -hmm. And even if it's a few, it adds so much meaning to life, to all of the years of practice and austerity and devotion. Now I can share that with someone in my old age in my in my retiring years it's very it's a beautiful natural development but unfortunately Prabhupada wanted all of his disciples to be diksha gurus 
I was just listening yesterday to the uh, Yas Puja address Prabhupada gave in 1969 in Hamburg. So emphatic. He said, all of you become gurus. All of you become gurus. It is not difficult. You just have to be sincere. So, so strong, so emphatic, but only about 2% of Prabhupada's initiated disciples are giving diksha. Hmm. And, and I think pretty much for our generation, it's, it's, there's not going to be a lot more. But because of the, the experiences we've had with zonal acharyas and that whole concept, I'm hoping your generation and succeeding generations will demystify the diksha guru, make it a little more down to earth, and, and make it a much more common phenomenon that somebody asks, you say, yes, I can give you initiation. Would you mind sharing what your experience was when you took on that role and how did, how did that come to take place? Yes, my, my dear godbrother Bhakti Marg Maharaj said, you should, you should uh, initiate disciples. And I said, I'm, I'm not qualified. And he said, we know. <laughs> <laughs> you should do it anyway. <laughs> and so um... wait let me go back to my 26 qualities oh yes humble okay he he was very persuasive and, he, and his points were very sound so i agreed to do it um and then my wife almost divorced me <laughs> She, she said, I don't want to be married to a Diksha Guru. Wow. And, uh, and, and again, this is the zonal acharya hangover. Now you're going to be a, a big star and everybody's going to say Guru Dave and offer you obeisances. And they're going to say, oh, you're Guru Ma. I don't want any part of it. Right. <laughs> so, um, so, so we worked it out. Uh, I agreed to take a limited number of disciples. Mm -hmm. uh, 12 disciples. She said, that's enough for Jesus. That's enough for you. Bud. <laughs> Are you, did you already uh, reach the cap? <laughs> well, what happened is, fortunately, by Krishna's grace, she saw that it didn't really go to my head. It, it didn't really change. Uh, yeah. Whatever I was, good or bad, that's, I just kept going. And uh, Good or bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, you don't, the point is you don't have to be materially perfect uh, on some exalted level of realization. You just have to be a committed devotee who's not, who, who's ready to take responsibility. If you can raise children, you can raise disciples. I've done both. And I can tell you disciples are a lot easier. You don't have to change their diapers. <laughs> Uh, they, they have their trips, they can disappoint you, but you know, you're starting with somebody who really, <clears throat> at least initially, wants to take your, your guidance. So we have, everybody has, so many devotees have children, but so few have disciples, it's really a shame. So that was my experience. I've, done, I, I've enjoyed it. It's, it's just a great, sweet service and very fulfilling. I have uh, 16 disciples. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, is really nothing compared to, to so many of my, my peers. But I, I just initiate people that I actually know that I have mentored and yeah. uh, that, that you know, naturally restricts it to a smaller number. All right. Well, thank you so much for 
sharing your personal experience with that, really demystifying the, uh, the intimidation with the whole idea. Of course, the basics need to be met. And, um, but after that, I, I really like how you're defining it as this is just a committed, a truly committed devotee. That, that's ultimately the qualification. And you don't have to be materially perfect. If anything, that might encourage the disciples, you know, where it's not like this, right? Like we're saying a superstar sannyasi, you know, lifelong brahmachari. And it's like, oh, I could never do that. It's really bringing it down to earth on a practical level for the majority of people out there who are probably lifelong grihastas. Yes. May, may I add something, Prabhu? Yes, please. Uh, in the ISKCON Disciples course, one of the tenets is that one should not, actually quoting Rupa Goswami, three things should be secret for a devotee. One's japa, one's vows, and one's guru. This is actually taught by the Goswamis. That, that why don't you talk about your vows or your, your uh, japa? Because you'd be bragging. Oh, I'm fasting for a codice. How about you, Prabhu? Hmm. I've done 32 rounds today. How about you? How many? You see? supposed mm. to be a secret thing. And similarly, one's guru is supposed to be a secret. It's supposed to be something that you don't share. But what in, in our sangha, what happens? First time you meet somebody, first question, who's your guru? <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a reason it's supposed to be secret, that the disciples should feel that if, the, if my guru is seen to have initiated somebody as low as me, it will be reflect badly on my guru. Therefore, I don't want anyone to know my guru's name. You see, that's, that's the tradition. There's a saying in Hindi that previously, the guru's name was secret. Today, it's published in the newspapers. <laughs> so why is it that we put so much emphasis? Because of our own spiritual insecurity. We want to borrow prestige from our guru uh, and let everybody know I'm a disciple of such and such. That just means that we're not feeling are incomplete in ourselves as devotees, you see? Mm. So <clears throat> um, having a great number of, of gurus, making it a much more common thing, will bring it down to where it's supposed to be. Not that uh, one is borrowing prestige from one's guru, but one is just a quiet, humble servant of one's anonymous guru in the civic succession. Mm -hmm. Seems that when the, the gurus have a, um, a more relatable uh, status or feel to them, that that brings the emphasis back to Srila Prabhupada and can unite us as a family within the movement right can under a grandfather a father yeah. figure um rather yeah. than sort of um you know the branches of the tree sort of breaking off or whatnot we can all be very united and strong thank you so much for making that point yes yes demystifying gurus puts Prabhupada in the center that's exactly right that's exactly right um bhakti true Maharaj made a video just not long before his passing in which he said that I'm a guru. Iskan is Prabhupada's ashram. Traditionally, a guru has an ashram and initiates students in his ashram. But Iskan is Prabhupada's ashram. And I am giving initiation only by the authority of the GBC. If the GBC tells me not to initiate, I don't initiate. I'm not a guru in my own right. I'm just 
assisting Srila Prabhupada in this way. And that keeps Prabhupada in the center. I, I love that point, Amrita. Very nice. Thank you. Um, can I ask you a question about the 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 one-on-one guru-disciple relationship and the kind of tailoring, customized approach that should be there, from my understanding. Uh, As an institution, it seems, and I may be wrong, but the feeling that I get is that we have our standard vows, our standard rules and regulation that we publicly um, vow to make and present in front of the deities and the assembled devotees. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, um, there might be some adjustments being made. I'm thinking, for example, it seems a pretty no-brainer that a new mom with a baby is not able to chant her 16 rounds. And I've heard that so many times, and it seems realistic, and, you know, it's just the reality. Um, Do you have any thoughts on, um, you know, on one hand, we're doing these big public vows, but then there's some adjustments behind the scenes that are a given or that are being made. What, what do you have to say about that? Right. This is the reason why, although Prabhupada is in the center, we need personal accountability. So if a disciple brings a situation like that to a, a guru, first of all, it's very helpful if they can email or call or get in touch with their guru readily to ask a question like that. Right. That's very helpful for many people. Uh, so then the, the guru is in a position to say, okay, under these circumstances, here's a standard you can maintain for some time. Maintain this standard, and then when uh, circumstances allow, you can revert to the previous standard. The, those sort of adjustments can be made without the disciple feeling uh, doubtful or guilty, which are not at all conducive for, for spiritual advancement. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Well, I think uh, we've covered the themes that we wanted to dive into with you. Thank you so much. Um, really some, I mean, I've, I have a page full of notes, really some, some great points you've made on the topics of, uh, you know, the developing the ashram system. Um, what are the successful strategies in that? The role of women in ISKCON and just bringing that equality that is uh, so overdue, how it took place in the first place. Thanks for giving the history behind that. And uh, yes, demystifying um, the, uh, the Diksha guru. Um, what's the word? Uh, we're understaffed in Diksha gurus. So how can we uh, bring that equilibrium back to our movement? I'm, I just want to reflect a little bit and then maybe ask um, for one more question. But I'm thinking how if if the the guru system is more accessible, it's more low key, and also um, your approach to the ashram setting and um, meeting the needs of the newest person, it really feels like what I'm walking away with is if we nurture this base, these these new people, these new people who are coming to Krishna consciousness, and we give them a solid, healthy holistic, vibrant experience where they have trustworthy people to look up to. They have Sankirtan to be enthused by. They have a home 
they have a family environment. Um, then, you know, we have a, in the West, particularly where, where, where someone like me needs that, literally needs that to survive in Krishna consciousness, that we have a chance to, um, you know, move on and, and raise families in Krishna consciousness and mature and, um, and find a way to stay, find a way to stay inspired and to stay um, happy um, in Krishna consciousness for the long haul. Um, so, so to put, to put our love and our energy into that, into that base or that foundation, that's really something that I'm, that I've taken away from for, for this, this evening. Thank you. Yes. Yes. That's, we really try to help people do exactly that. So Ma to wrap up, we, we wanted to ask you, oh, Vaishnavi Prabhu, do you have a question? Yeah, had a question on the <laughs> Yes, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm just pulling up the questions here. Okay. But go ahead. If you wanted to say something, Prabhu, while I look through the... We have some questions from our online viewers here. Okay. I, I'm seeing one from uh, Mahavishnu Priya, Prabhu. She writes, uh, isn't it just a question of linking up a sincere young aspiring follower with Srila Prabhupada? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, the, the, the aspiring disciple is first encouraged, make a relationship with Prabhupada. Don't even think about a Diksha Guru for at least six months or a year while you're cultivating that relationship. And then it is a mature expression of submission to Prabhupada to accept a Diksha Guru, because then you're actually accountable to somebody who is uh, acting on Srila Prabhupada's behalf. So that, that's the idea. Certainly, I, I believe, uh, you know, all of my guru god brothers approached it in that way, or nearly all of them. They have that philosophical understanding that Prabhupada is the preeminent Siksha Guru. You are muted, Mataji. We cannot hear you. I, I, can, re I can read the question here from uh, Madhuri Lila Prabhu. She says, how would it work for newer, younger devotees giving diksha? If their guru is still on the planet, especially since so few Srila Prabhupada's disciples are Diksha gurus. So is that a, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, excellent question. And, and again, the, uh, the, the GBC is recognizing that and trying to deal with that question. There was a gulf of difference between Srila Prabhupada and his disciples. He was 70, they were 20, um, very inexperienced through, compared to his lifelong devotion. So now it's a different dynamic. Uh, many of our gurus have disciples who have been practicing for 20, 30 years and are really qualified to give diksha themselves. There's a couple of statements Prabhupada made that the etiquette is that one should not initiate in the presence of one's guru. So if we look at that hermeneutically, that, that statement, uh, we, we have to see how that applied in a village setting and um, where the guru was living there with his disciples. Uh, but in an international sangha like ours, it's less relevant. Um, so the GBC is recognizing the tremendous need for more diksha gurus and therefore liberalizing those sort of practices. There's another advantage, uh, Madhuri Lila Prabhu, about the uh, um, diksha gurus, disciples giving diksha in their presence is that they can be trained. The amount of training I got as a diksha guru was very inadequate. There, there's a, there is a guru school 
if you're going to give Diksha, you go and attend a, a weekend seminar. But there's so many things that I was not taught that if I had the opportunity, I would teach my disciples. So I tell all my disciples, yeah, I want you to be initiating as soon as possible. Um, you know, I'll help train you. And whether if that means I can't initiate anymore, it's fine, no problem. But the, we're, we're coming to recognize we're not going to expand the number of gurus to 10 million if we have all these restrictions. No women, no second generation, gotta be highly, highly somehow qualified. We're just never going to make 10 million. So mm. uh, uh, small, more manageable qualifications, less of the, the restrictions. That's our hope. That's my hope that the, the future generations will get rid of all of this obstruction. Great. All right. So I think we should uh, wrap it up. We have a, a little uh, something we're going to share, uh, which is the uh, um, a performance by the Blind Uncle Band. For those who don't know, Kalakant Prabhu is uh, probably the mastermind behind this band and all the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the great satire ly lyrics. Um, what was this one that we have selected? Um, oh, it's a song about devotee attitude set to the tunes of uh, Let It Be. But uh, be before we end with that, I just wanted to ask you one final thought, Prabhu. Um, just looking back since you've been in a 50-year career now in Krishna consciousness, what are some personal reflections looking back? Um, what keeps you in it and moving forward today? Well, the, the biggest hurdle for many of us is to come to understand that Krishna loves and accepts us as we are and we don't have to be something else. That self-realization, coming to that point of no, no pretenses. Jayad Waitamarish tells a nice story about buying a ticket in Grand Central Station in New York, and the lady says, looks at his dhoti and says, who are you? He said, I'm a Hare Krishna. Oh, Hare Krishna, I like you people. You are who you pretend to be. <laughs> I was muted, but I just laughed like a hyena. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, so actually being who we pretend to be. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> which means, yeah, no more pretend. Then it's very easy to stay in Krishna consciousness. Yeah. We well, that, to me, that, that also ties into the latest slogan that I'm hearing from the next generation devotees on all these new platforms that we have out there, you know, Bodhika and uh, the Namras podcast, which is chant and be honest along with chant and be happy, chant and be honest. And I really, I really like that. I think it's a, a good motto for us to uh, try to imbibe as well. Prabhu, thank you so much. It was great to thank have you. you on the show. Really so many wonderful insights. And um, thank you to our viewers and listeners for your question. <laughs> Please uh, tune in for the next episode. We'll, uh, we'll leave you with the Kalakanta Prabhu's rendition of Let It Be.
And when Prasad is over, she is standing right in front of me. Help us wash the dishes, won't you please? 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 Service is auspicious, won't you please? So many able-bodied people live in Nuramakriti. Let them wash the dishes and let us be. We used to wash them often until we attained seniority. So let them wash the dishes and let us be. on guitar, Prabhu. I'm reporting. Dad. Celebrity. Celebrity. 